always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky broadband and lightning fast speeds. See sky.ie for more. In a clinic in Tala, a group of people with treatment-resistant depression have been given a psychedelic drug. Psilocybin is the hallucinogenic component found in magic mushrooms. This Dublin group is part of an international trial called the Compass Pathway Trial. This is a study into how psychedelics might be used therapeutically. After the, the experience, the psilocybin experience, I had a sense of optimism, the space around me again. It has such a huge impact. Irish Times reporter Patrick Frain spoke to the team behind the Tala trial. Like what's very clear is everyone involved with these kind of new trials is doing everything by the book. There's, they do not want it to be confused with, um, you know, people going off doing ayahuasca ceremonies in the hills of Wicklow or people who are dropping loads of acid and then playing 20-hour guitar solos. This is a very serious trial by people who really care about mental health, working with people who are suffering. Research has been set back decades by the moral panic surrounding drugs such as LSD. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. But how difficult might any journey to market be for a drug containing psilocybin? And how exactly does it work? I'm Connor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how psychedelics could hold the key to treatment-resistant depression and other conditions. Patrick, you recently wrote a feature for the Irish Times about a study, part of which took place in Ireland, that examined how psychedelic drugs, and I think psilocybin in particular, can be used for people with treatment-resistant depression. Can you tell me a little bit about that study and what its aims were? Yeah, it's, so it's actually a really big international study. It's called the Compass Pathway Trial. Psilocybin has been used safely in hundreds of research sessions in the past decade. And it's being done across uh, a huge number of countries. It involves 233 people in total and a subset of them were in Ireland. And participants received either a 25 milligram, 10 milligram or 1 milligram dose of psilocybin. Some received a placebo and this was all in the context of psychotherapy before and after. And the Irish bit was done in Sheaf House, which is a HC community mental health service in Tala. So it's a pretty interesting trial, really. And you saw some of the study's early findings from this part of the world. What have we learned or what are we likely to learn as a result of this research? So the people involved would see this as very promising, like it's not revolutionary or anything, but it's uh, suggestive that it could be a very useful drug to use in the context of psychotherapy. The Results are significant. They show that 37% of the participants who got a 25 milligram dose had a 50% or more decrease in their depressive symptoms. That reduced to 19% for the group who only got 10 milligrams and 18% for the group that got one milligram. And there was a second smaller study where the people remained on SSRI antidepressants and received a 25 milligram dose. And they had a 42% response rate. Everyone involved in the study had what they call treatment resistant depression. So they'd had some treatment options in the past that hadn't worked to reduce their depression. So there's a lot of numbers there, Patrick. Yeah. But basically, you're saying that... 40% of the people who received the highest dose of psilocybin 
responded positively to the drug. Is that correct? Yeah, 37%. Um, yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's it, like the way the guy running the study, who's a psychiatrist, um, Dr. John Kelly, put it, it, it's up there with other forms of treatment for depression. So I guess the thing about psilocybin is it's a, it's a Schedule 1 kind of illegal drug. So it's traditionally seen as a drug that's gotten, got no medical or scientific benefit. So to use it in a trial like this is kind of a novelty to some degree, but it's something that's increasingly happening around the world. What about the human stories? How did individuals respond to the treatments and how did the researchers characterise those responses? So it's really interesting, like the way it happens. So people who use these drugs recreationally do not do them in the same set of circumstances. They would have had a number of preparatory sessions with a psychotherapist who kind of prepared them, talked them through their issues, their triggers, the things that kind of bothered them, the things they were worried about. And then for at least six hours one day, they came into a special room that had a bed You laid down with an eye mask, um, wearing headphones, listening to kind of specially curated, soothing music, and you were given a dose of psilocybin. In the beginning, as psilocybin starts to activate different areas of your brain, you may feel some unusual physical sensations, like being hot or cold. So it's not the same as young people who do it at a club or festival. Um, (laughs) And then afterwards, they would have also had what they called uh, kind of reintegration sessions where they discussed their experiences with the psychotherapist. I spoke to one of the psychotherapists involved, Lisa Burke, and she said, like, again, as the study shows, it didn't work for everyone, but for the people for whom it did work, they had a really significant experience. And kind of anyone who's kind of read up about psychedelic drugs, it fits in with that. It's um, people felt a sense of connection to the universe. They felt, felt a great sense of love. They felt loved. As she kind of put it, a lot of these people would have talked about having not had that sort of emotional experience in a long time. Allow yourself to experience them fully. So the question then is how that kind of proceeds over time, which is, a, which is a different thing to how it happened at the time. And actually, as she said as well, it's not because they're lying there with kind of headphones on and a mask on. It doesn't look necessarily hugely dramatic. They might be having very significant emotional experiences, but to an onlooker, it might just look at like somebody kind of moving around in bed. Um, mm. And she's there throughout. Um, and the other psychotherapists were there throughout for, for the patients they were working with. So if somebody was having a difficult experience or was feeling anxious, they were there and they could put their hand out and get affirmation from the psychotherapist. Can I ask what's happening at a physiological level when people take these psychedelics? Now, I know that neither of us are scientists, and that's something that's probably painfully obvious to anyone listening. But could you explain to me, even in very layman terms, how is it that these drugs work? So the kind of very simple version is that we have built up all these defences that we are using almost unconsciously over the course of our lives. And we filter the world through that. And what psychedelics tend to do is they tend to disrupt that. So um, we tend to experience things, remember things, see things that maybe we haven't thought about in a long time. 
on a technical level, uh, and this is where it gets out of my pay grade entirely, what it's apparently doing is it's activating a subset of serotonin receptors called 2A receptors. And they're spread through the brain. Many of them are in the frontal cortex and the limbic areas. These are all words that I had to learn. And it kind of changes how the brain connects up. And it kind of defaults around some of the thinking that we've kind of built up over time, over the years. So we're kind of experiencing things from a very new perspective. It gives people, the way they put it, the experts put it, is because you're removing a lot of the baggage we've built up, you're getting new insights and you're getting a new sense of psychological flexibility. That's kind of how they put it. After my my mum died, I didn't want to let go. During the psilocybin experience, I saw the grief as a kind of poison. I had a realisation that that I I was using that to hang on to my my mum, but that was was poisoning me. I would have been like a, 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 a kind of stick in the mud. Now I'm more, I'm more like a reed, you know, there's a bit more bend in me. So it's kind of short circuiting how our brain has been hardwired over a long period of time, maybe. Yeah, like they shy away from kind of very kind of revolutionary language about it. But other people have described it as a bit of a reset. They prefer not to make it so revolutionary because they're trying to be as medical and scientific as possible. But yeah, that's the gist of it. And of course, you say science and you mention science and a lot of psychedelic drugs, not all of them, but a lot of psychedelic drugs started out in labs. I think famously, Albert Hoffman invented LSD in the 1930s. And in what must have been one of the weirdest and certainly most colourful lab accidents ever, it was first consumed by mistake. Yeah. <laughs> did, did it spend much time being researched in labs? Did these psychedelic drugs spend much time being researched in labs between the 1930s and the 1960s? And who was carrying out the research? So it was taken very seriously by psychiatrists and scientists for a very long time. And they were looking at different ways to use things like LSD with people who had um, mental health issues. What happened slowly over time is in the 1960s in particular, some of the people involved in this sort of research kind of went AWOL to some degree. So people like Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert um, who would have started out as kind of psychologists in Harvard, began to take the uh, experiments off the campus. And before you knew it, you had people like Ken Kesey driving around in multicoloured buses doing acid tests and whoever wanted to take them with the Grateful Dead playing in the background. And kind of in the 60s, it becomes more of a countercultural phenomenon. It becomes something that's more about philosophy and revolution um, than it is about kind of mental health. We tell young people today, drop out of school, because schools, education today, is the worst narcotic drug of all. Don't politic, don't vote. These are old men's games, impotent and senile old men that want to put you onto their uh, old chess games of war and power. Drop out. Uh, tune in with natural things. Take off your shoes. Uh, get back in tune with God's harmony. Surround yourself with beauty and sacred objects. You can't get caught in the conforming, rote, lockstep, which we call American society. And to some degree, that kind of blotted the copybook for an awful lot of people who wanted to look into this seriously as a form of medicine. America's public enemy number one 
in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I've asked the Congress... At the moment, um, acid and LSD and psilocybin are kind of Schedule 1 drugs, which are the worst kind of drugs. They're considered to have a big potential for abuse and uh, to have no scientific or medical use, which people doing tr- studies like this and trials like this obviously very much disagree with. Yeah, because, I mean, when you think about it, you, you know, like classifying psilocybin along with crystal meth or heroin, it doesn't seem to make a huge degree of sense from a scientific or medical perspective, does it? Well, I guess that's why the trials are happening now and they're looking into, I mean, there's other experiment trials, I won't say experiments happening very, very kind of cautiously and carefully on other drugs like MDMA and there's trials involving ketamine. There's very few drugs that don't have any medical use. And I think one of the things that happened with a lot of these drugs in the 60s is that it became a, there was an awful lot of scare stories around psychedelics. There is evidence that people with tendencies towards psychosis should not go near psychedelic drugs. And, you know, they're very careful about that with trials like this. But I think an awful lot of those scare stories meant that it was very difficult for a serious researcher to look at these drugs until recent years again. And I think a lot of the people working in this space now kind of see a lot of lost decades when these drugs could have ended up being used very therapeutically with people in a way that actually helped a subset of people. We've all heard really scary things about psychedelics. They scrambled your chromosomes. They caused you to hop off of buildings. It was all terrifying. So I took a look at the true effects of these substances. You spoke to Michael Pollan, and he's written a book called How to Change Your Mind. And he also has an accompanying Netflix series. What if mental health problems like OCD, PTSD, alcoholism and depression could all be helped? How does he view the underground nature of the psychedelic experience over the last half a century? And was that, or does he perceive that to be a lost period of time when more substantial research could have been done? I think everyone agrees that there was a lost period of time because the drugs were demonised. I think there's very different ways of looking at that. Um, If you are medical professional who is interested in this being used in a kind of clinical setting, you want it very much to be seen as a scientific thing. I think there is an argument that some people would make that it's also just useful for some people. I I wouldn't advocate for or against it in a kind of self-development setting. So in Michael Pollan's Netflix documentary, which series which you can watch, How to Change Your Mind, like he goes and talks to the people who are doing it in more underground forms. Anselmo Garcia Martinez is a curandero or healer working in a tradition that's been handed down for more than a thousand years. And he would argue, and he'd be kind of right, that a lot of these people kind of kept the research alive. He kind of compares them to the monasteries after the fall of Rome and the Dark Ages, um, keeping certain types of knowledge alive. I think other people would view it with a more jaundiced eye and see that some of these kind of more ad hoc experimentalists maybe give the whole field a bit of a bad reputation. Um, What's definitely the case now is that these psychedelic drugs are being used in much more professional settings and they are being looked into very seriously in a number of medical institutions all over the world. 
Do you have any sense as to when there might be any kind of long-term breakthroughs or what might happen once this research is concluded? Because it does seem like the drugs have the potential to help a great many people, but did the researchers you were speaking to have any notion as to when there might be therapeutic drugs available based around psilocybin or other hallucinogenics? So I don't think, like, it's still unclear if all, like, I think at the moment in this context, it was kind of used as a once-off kind of drug that gives you a bit of a breakthrough if it works and then you can kind of use that as a starting point. I think in an ideal world, John Kelly was saying that he would like to see, you know, a psilocybin centre or a psychedelic therapy centre or programme in Ireland, but that could come like a long way down the line. I think an awful lot of data has to be developed first. There will be more trials. There are trials internationally looking at psychotherapy using psilocybin with people who have anorexia nervosa. It can be used apparently to help people with addictions, which seems counterintuitive, but um, apparently is true. And they're, they're very interested in all these studies. I think there's an awful lot of stigma that needs to be broken down first. Like, I think even the fact people might worry due to the stories they've heard could affect how positive this could be. So over time, I think as the stigma breaks down, as more data comes out and as more trials like this happen, you could very well see this being a kind of normal, <laughs> normalised form of therapy for people. John Kelly does say that this is a good result. It's not like uh, some of the people who talk about psychedelics talk about it, like a revolutionary drug that helps everyone. This is a good re result that suggests it's as effective as other types of therapies. And everyone who works in kind of uh, psychological health knows that different things basically work for different people. And this is something that could very well work for a subset of people who have depression. But of course, Ireland is very slow legalizing these kinds of drugs. I mean, you just look at Ireland compared to the United States when it comes to marijuana. And what do you think is driving that conservatism in this part of the world? Why are people so frightened of psychedelic drugs or drugs like marijuana? I, I, that's a huge question, because I think what hap what's happened in the Western world is there is, on the one hand, there's a huge pharmaceutical industry that basically tells us that drugs are very useful and very good. And on the other hand, drugs are arguably misused in certain contexts. I think all a study like this is, is doing is it's suggesting that one of the drugs you put in one basket could also be in the other basket. Uh, there's huge arguments about the criminalization of drugs and drug use that, that are probably for another podcast. Um, I spoke to um, youth workers last year, I think, who were petitioning to have all drugs delegalized. So there's there's loads of arguments about the correct response to, you know, drug abuse in society and whether that should be more criminalization or less criminalization and maybe a little bit more therapy. Mm. And then the odd, the other odd thing is that you have a drug like heroin which is of course an opiate and opi opiate opiates are used frequently uh, for therapies. I think ultimately we all know that opiates are the only painkiller that works in certain extreme situations. And we also know that opiates are, are misused in kind of cities all over the world. I think it will be the case that, well, if 
these trials kind of go the way they seem to be going at the moment, I think it will be the case that we'll start seeing psilocybin and LSD and MDMA and other drugs as having a potential therapeutic use. And again, it's it's to do with the environment in which they're given. Like I can't, I, I want to stress how professional mm. and controlled this whole trial is. There is another world of, you know, like I said, there's another world of people doing ceremonies in the woods, you know, uh, without any controls. And this is very much a different thing. This is, these are psychiatrists and th- psychotherapists who know what they're doing. I think generally we probably need to get away from the idea of good drugs and bad drugs. And I think an awful lot of what's happened is drugs that could be useful were classed in the bad drug category. And in contrast to that, you get situations like the issue in America around OxyContin, you know, a drug that was prescribed by doctors so nobody knew they were getting addicted to it or, or believed they would get addicted to it. So I think, you know, all of these things are kind of in flux. Patrick Frayne, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Aideen Finnegan, Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. We'll be back on Monday. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base.